PA Books is a production of PCN, a nonprofit television network. Listeners like you make our programming possible. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. I'm Phil Beckman. PA Books features interviews with authors of books about Pennsylvania history, culture, and people. In this episode, we talk with Jennifer Murray about her book, On a Great Battlefield, The Making, Management, and Memory of Gettysburg National Military Park, 1933 to 2023. This week on PA Books, Jennifer Murray, author of On a Great Battlefield. Jennifer Murray is the author of On a Great Battlefield, The Making, Management, and Memory of Gettysburg National Military Park, 1933 to 2023. How did you become interested in this battle? Well, thank you for having me today, Phil. I'm thrilled to talk with you and PCN about this book. Uh, my interest in the Gettysburg Battlefield is longstanding. Um, I was born in Pennsylvania, uh, the western part of the state, a little community called Myersdale, Pennsylvania and lived in Myersdale, uh, Pennsylvania for about six years and then my family moved over to Maryland. So I grew up about two hours from the Gettysburg battlefield, um, close to Antietam, close like right in the heartland of the Civil War sites. And when I was an undergraduate, my undergraduate degree is from Frostburg State University. And when I was an undergraduate, I interned for the National Park Service at Gettysburg. That was the summer between my junior and senior year and I spent 12 weeks, 13, 14 weeks, um, working for the Park Service at the battlefield, doing visitor services, working the information desk, and um, doing tours of the battlefield. And that internship ended up turning into a seasonal position. I ended up working nine summers for the National Park Service at Gettysburg. And um, that's how I became interested in the battlefield. I got a graduate degree, a master's degree, and a PhD in Civil War history and then have a Civil War career now as an academic historian. But the book um, was my dissertation. So I um, finished my PhD from Auburn University in 2010. And one summer I was tasked with writing a, basically a chapter of the dissertation, um, something of original research. And the first part that I wrote was on uh, the New Deal and this transition between the War Department and the National Park Service, 1933. And um, I knew I had something there with kind of that topic. There's been over, I state this in the introduction, but there's been over um, 18,000 books written on the Battle of Gettysburg. Eight, that's like, that's enormous, 18,000 books written on the Gettysburg cam campaign and the battle. Uh, mostly they focus on the fighting between the Union and the Confederate armies, but very little attention had been given to the history of the battlefield. Like, what happens to this landscape after July of 1863? And that's what my book focuses on. So it's a history not of the battle, but of the battlefield in the 160 years since the Union and Confederate armies fought in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Well, let's go back to that period right after the battle. So the battle, last day of the battle, July 3rd, 1863, armies start to move out of the area. What do residents find in the aftermath of the battle? Chaos. So imagine 
the time of the battle, Gettysburg is a community of just over 2,000 people. It's a small crossroads. There's some dozen roads that lead in and out of Gettysburg. And the Civil War came to their landscape in late June of 1863. You had 90-some thousand men in the Union Army, the Army of the Potomac, commanded by George Gordon Meade, some 72, 73,000 men in the Confederate Army, the Army of Northern Virginia, commanded by Robert E. Lee. And they fight in this, in and around this small community for over three days. You know, the battles, the first, second, third of July. And then the armies leave, um, the pursuit down to the Potomac River, and the civilians are left with all the mess and the chaos. There's wounded soldiers, some 30,000 men are wounded during the Battle of Gettysburg. Some 7,000 Union and Confederate soldiers are killed during the battle. A couple additional uh, thousand soldiers, two or three, will die after the battle. Their crops are destroyed. Their fencing patterns are ruined. There's some 10,000 horses and mules that are littering the battlefield, uh, their homes, their properties. Their wells are dried up. So this is um, the hard hand of war, a strange and blighted land. And the civilians are going to have to move forward, right? They're going to have to start burying the dead. They're going to have to start to bring some sort of order to their communities that saw the bloodiest battle, the largest battle of the American Civil War fought on their landscape. It's transformative. It transforms this community. When does the process of memorialization begin? Right away. And I think that's unique uh, to Gettysburg's story. The local authorities in Gettysburg, uh, David McConaughey, who I write about in the book, has the foresight to start memorializing or envisioning a memorial landscape. And in the summer of 1864, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania will set a charter that creates the Gettysburg Battlefield Memorial Association. We call it the GBMA for short, but this is the battlefield's first preservation entity. And think of the timing. This is the summer of 1864. It's less than a year after the Battle of Gettysburg has been fought. The Civil War is still going on. In Virginia, the Overland Campaign is about to kick off. The war in the West is raging. But some of the local businessmen, lawyers of Gettysburg have the belief that something special happened there and that that landscape should be preserved in perpetuity as a memorial for the men who fought there. And the GBMA, the state of Pennsylvania, will grant that charter and they will manage the battlefield until 1895. The GBMA is the first grassroots preservation of the Gettysburg battlefield. Well, let's talk a little bit about landscape. Uh, you know, obviously we drive through it, we walk around it, but when it comes to memorializing things, it, it takes on more symbolic elements. Uh, talk about some of the different concepts of landscape that have been involved uh, during, the, during the park's history. Well, the battlefield itself is layered. And I would certainly encourage visitors to Gettysburg. You know, the park receives some one million visitors every year. Most people, of course, are interested in the battle. They want to learn about the regiments and the soldiers and the tactics. But when you get there to look at the, the layers, um, the commemorative landscape is the most obvious feature. Um, Gettysburg is the most 
monumented of the Civil War battles, fields with some 1,300 monuments and markers and tablets. And that commemorative landscape helps people like you and I understand the battle and the fighting, but it's also a testament to the men who fought there. Most of the monuments that are on the battlefield today honor Union soldiers and Union regiments. And those markers and monuments, uh, by and large, were put up by the veterans themselves. Um, kind of a big flurry in the late 19th century as this commemorative landscape. So the Park Service today, its mission is to preserve the historic landscape, the battlefield itself, but also all those commemorative features that layer over places like Little Round Top and the Peach Orchard and the wheat field itself. So it's a layered landscape. Now, over time, there's been an effort to try to maintain the park in, in the status that it was at the time of the battle in terms of view yeah. lines and, and what was there. How difficult has that been? I think that's one of the most profound changes that has occurred at Gettysburg, and it absolutely changes how we see the battlefield and how we understand the battle. And that philosophy really took hold in the early 21st century. Um, Superintendent John Latcher had a plan to restore or rehabilitate the battlefield landscape to what the Union Confederate soldiers would have seen in the summer of 1863, as close as possible. So today, if you visit Gettysburg, you can feel pretty confident that the landscape you're seeing would mirror what those Union and Confederate soldiers saw. So that means removal of non-historic woodlots, um, some over 500 acres of non-historic woodlots had been removed. It means replanting orchards that would have been there at the time of the battle. That means reestablishing fencing patterns. And even the type of fence that you see on the Gettysburg battlefield today is accurate to what it was in 1863, whether it's the post and rail fence or the Virginia warm fence, only location and the type of fence would represent what the Union and Confederate soldiers saw. And that's incredible. When I, when I worked at Gettysburg, I was there in the early 2000s. I would be there from May, June, July, and August. And then I would leave to go back to school. And then I'd come back in May to start my summer season. And a lot of the cutting had occurred in the fall or the winter. So I would be driving around the battlefield and see these vistas that weren't there when I was there earlier in that summer and these view sheds. And you can understand how Union and, and Confederate regiments move on the battlefield. You understand fields of fire so much better with this effort to rehabilitate and restore the landscape. That's been going on for uh, well over a decade. Um, recent work done on Culp's Hill has been really transformative, and Gettysburg is certainly leading the way in all the Civil War sites of trying to replicate as close as possible, of course, to what the landscape looked like at the time of the battle. Now, you mentioned that the War Department eventually took over control of, of the park. Uh, why, why, why did the War Department uh, take over, and uh, how did their approach to preserving it change from what had gone before? Uh, great question. So the GBMA was mostly preserving land on the Union Army's battle line. They didn't have the money to purchase land on ground that the Army Northern Virginia held. 
So that combined with the reality of they're hamstrung by funding. They don't have money to go out and purchase additional lands. So in 1895, the War Department steps in and the GBMA will transfer their holdings. They had 522 acres at that time. They oversaw the installation of the first park roads, tour routes, and the installation and erection of the park's first monuments, some 300 at that time. So when the GBMA transfers their money to the, or transfers their property, rather, to the War Department, this is the like, golden age of battlefield preservation, um, one historian labels it. And at the time, the federal government is getting into the business of preserving Civil War battlefields. Uh, Chickamauga, Chattanooga becomes a national military park around this time. Shiloh will as well. Antietam, just south of us down in Maryland. Gettysburg in February of 1895. And Vicksburg, National Military Park in Mississippi. Those are the first five. And the time when the War Department assumes control of these battlefields is this period of reconciliation. You have Civil War veterans serving in Congress, which is important because they're going to make sure that the federal government has the money and the desire to preserve these lands. You have political sway in Congress. And this period of reconciliation is vitally important. Um, it's an era when white Northerners and white Southerners have reconciled. They've agreed willingly to put aside all the contentious issues of the American Civil War, slavery, secession, Jim Crow, failures of Reconstruction, and come together as a unified America, white Northerners and white Southerners. And battlefields are an important part of that conversation. Uh, Gettysburg is an uncertainly an important part of that conversation. Union and Confederate veterans will meet at the Gettysburg battlefield, for instance, in 1913, at the 50th anniversary of the battle as this testimony to a nation healed. And that's the purpose that the War Department um, has in preserving Civil War battlefields, to memorialize the landscape for the men who fought and served there. Now, this, this reconciliationist narrative would ha have a big impact on the history of the park you know, going forward. Oh, why, why did it have such an appeal to people? The American Civil War is our most divisive epic. Obviously, it's a civil war. It's our nation's defining epic as well. Over 700,000 Americans die during the American Civil War. And the legacies of that conflict we still live with today. But for the Union Confederate soldiers and for Civil War Americans, Civil War white Americans, they're aiming to move forward. And battlefields help that narrative, that reconciliationist narrative. One, one of the phrases you often hear with regard to the battlefield is high water mark. Yeah. Uh, what does that refer to? So the high water mark is a reference to the height of the Confederate Army Northern Virginia's power. Uh, usually it's associated with Pickett's Charge on July the 3rd, the high water mark. Um, for visitors that tour the battlefield, you can go to Cemetery Ridge and walk out to the fields of Pickett's Charge, and you can see the high watermark monument where the cops of trees are infenced with the tablet, the open book tablet, to the high watermark Pickett's Charge on July the 3rd. 
So it's this concept that the fighting of Pickett's Charge on July the 3rd is the high tide of the Confederate power. The Army of Northern Virginia came closest to victory, to um, not only victory at Gettysburg, but perhaps um, victory in the entire Civil War at that offensive on July the 3rd, 1863. And then, <clears throat> symbolically, that becomes sort of the focal point of the Battle of Gettysburg, the high watermark. Um, John Batchelder, who I write um, about in the book a little bit, identifies that copse of trees as being uh, singularly important for this turning point, this high tide or high water mark of the Confederacy. And it really drives a lot of the tourism at Gettysburg and also this narrative. Uh, we like to debate and think about whether or not Gettysburg was the turning point of the American Civil War, was the Civil War won or lost on the fields at Gettysburg. And often that conversation takes root in this notion that July the 3rd, 1863, is one of those, like, singular moments in that narrative where something could have been different. Now, one of the key features of the battlefield for many years was the Gettysburg Cyclorama and the role that it played in how the park interpreted uh, the events of, of the battle. Can you talk about, about why that's significant and how that shaped those interpretations? So the Gettysburg Cyclorama, uh, cyclorama is maybe an interesting word. It's painting in the round, right? And it is done by an artist named Paul Philippito. And Philippito creates this, basically for 19th century Americans, it was their version of 3D, where you can stand in the center of this 360 degree painting and be immersed in Pickett's Charge, the fighting on July the 3rd. And the cyclorama, um, it has several different homes on the Gettysburg battlefield. <clears throat> it temporarily is on a building on East Cemetery Hill, and then it is relocated to what we would call the Cyclorama Center, which was part of the Mission 66 project and then torn down when the Visitor Center and Cyclorama Center moved into the new building in 2008. But the concept is, with the cyclorama and the high water mark is, is just what we were talking about. The, the battle really hinges on Pickett's Charge on July the 3rd, 1863. And for a long time, that was the guiding narrative to what the Park Service, um, their interpretive programming, really centered on this high water mark thesis. And now with the new building being open, um, that opened in 2008, the Park Service shifted their interpretive trajectory to what is called a new birth of freedom. So they emphasize Abraham Lincoln more, the Gettysburg Address a little more, some more of the issues of um, race and equality and some of the enduring legacies of the Battle of Gettysburg and the American Civil War. Now, you say that part of the focus of, of this interpretive framework for so many years actually had a Confederate centered uh, way of thinking about the battle. How, how did a battle that was a Union victory on, in a northern state have a Confederate-focused interpretation for so many years? That's a great question. Um, so Gettysburg is a Union victory on Union soil, and most of the monuments and markers, of course, tell the story of Union soldiers in the Army of the Potomac. But Confederate soldiers start Confederate veterans, rather, start to have an interest in Gettysburg in the late 19th century. Um, people like E.P. Alexander, for instance, will come up and start to place 
markers to where the Confederate artillery was during the battle. We talked a little bit about the, the War Department and the Park Commission. Uh, the Park Commission is set up so it's managed by veterans of the battle. So two, it's a commission that has three members on it. Two of them are Union veterans. One of them is a Confederate veteran. So you will have a Confederate soldier, a Confederate veteran, as part of the management and monument decisions that are being made at the Gettysburg battlefield. So the era of, like, Confederate memorialization on the battlefield really doesn't take hold until the 1960s. The first Confederate monument that goes on the battlefield is the Lee Memorial, and that goes up in 1917, the Virginia Monument. And then North Carolina puts up a monument, and so does Alabama. But really, during the 1960s, you have a flurry of Confederate monuments that go up on West Confederate Avenue um, for the 100th anniversary. But otherwise, the Confederate story, I, I think, gets back to your question about being rooted in the high watermark, uh, this interest in the Confederates thinking the lost cause, that perhaps Gettysburg is where the Civil War, you know, where the tide turned. Uh, can you go further into the lost cause? What was that? The lost cause is a, is a concept that basically explains or justifies Confederate defeat. Um, the name originates from a newspaper columnist. Um, his name is Edward Pollard, and he writes um, a book called The Lost Cause. And this is how Confederates, Southerners, white Southerners, justify defeat. A lot of that is rooted in Robert E. Lee's order to his men at Appomattox, um, General Order Number 9, where he writes that the Army of Northern Virginia has been compelled to surrender to overwhelming numbers and resources. The idea being, if the Army of Northern Virginia and if Confederates had equal numbers of men to Union armies and to the North, that perhaps the outcome would have been different. Um, but the lost cause then manifests itself in a variety of ways in the years and decades after the American Civil War, most evidently in the erection of Confederate monuments and the placement of Confederate monuments in any number of places across the country. Now, we talked about the War Department's uh, tenure running the park. Uh, in 1933, the National Park Service would take over. Uh, how did that change the interpretive uh, approach to the, the park? Yeah, that's important. So the National Park Service originates as an agency in 1916, but by and large, they are preserving western sites. So they'll preserve parks out like Yosemite and Yellowstone. They don't have a lot of interest or background in preserving historic sites. So when the National Park Service acquires Gettysburg in the summer of 1933, this is taking that agency in a new direction. And the other five national military parks that I mentioned were also acquired at that time. I think 57 parks are transferred from the War Department to the National Park Service. And this is a learning period for the National Park Service. One thing that struck me when I was writing this and doing the research for it is how much latitude individual park managers had to manage their site. So today, we have overarching umbrella philosophies on preservation. We have policies and we have standards that pretty much are writ large across the agency. 
that wasn't the case in 1933. So the National Park Service has to kind of stumble its way forward into managing the Civil War and our nation's most iconic battlefield here at Gettysburg. And the first superintendent who, from the National Park Service, is named uh, James McConaughey, and not to be confused with David McConaughey, he is a landscape architect by background. So when he's here managing Gettysburg, he looks at the Civil War battlefield as a landscape. How can I make this a more attractive area for visitors? What can I do to beautify the landscape? That means promoting tourism in the springtime because the red buds are out. That means promoting tourism in the fall because the battlefield's fall foliage is attractive. So his vision of the battlefield as a landscape architect sets sort of that, that stage or that tenure. Uh, but the National Park Service, some of their decision-making in that early transition period, um, today we would kind of scratch our, our heads out, of course, because preservation philosophy has changed so much in that intervening period. But the big transition, too, I'll, I'll add, is the National Park Service obviously is a government agency. So no longer do you have veterans who are involved in this, the decision-making. They have died out. They're not part of the Park Commission any longer. So that transition from the War Department with veterans on that commission to the National Park Service to government bureaucrats is obviously a transformative period for the National Park Service. So in this period when the Park Service takes over, it's the, the Great Depression is going on, the New Deal is being implemented. How, how does the New Deal impact the park? That was surprising to me. I thought that the New Deal would hinder or set back the National Park Service at Gettysburg, and it, it was the opposite. Um, the National Park Service at Gettysburg kind of thrives during the Great Depression. And I think many of us are familiar, uh, listeners are familiar with President Roosevelt and those alphabet agencies that we had to memorize in high school. Well, Gettysburg hosts um, New Deal projects, most prominently the Civilian Conservation Corps. The CCC is pro probably Roosevelt's uh, greatest New Deal project, and it puts young men to work. And here on the Gettysburg battlefield, the CCC will have uh, two camps out on West Confederate Avenue, and they will do a lot of manual labor. Uh, basically, the modern infrastructure of Gettysburg National Military Park is created by New Deal laborers. They will improve the roads. They will improve uh, drainage on the roads, the roads themselves, curves. Um, they will put in new fencing. They will clean and repair monuments. The comfort stations, you might think of on the battlefield, um, basically the, the restrooms out by the Pennsylvania Monument, for instance, those stone structures, they're erected during the New Deal. Um, so a lot of this kind of modern infrastructure takes its place because of the work of CCC laborers. And, and I'll add, too, that the CCC camps at Gettysburg are unique because they are African-American workers. Um, the CCC camps transition to all African-American laborers, 
with a white supervisor, but you will see black CCC workers on the Gettysburg battlefield. Um, that's done intentionally to be a bit of a sort of a testing ground for African Americans in the CCC here at Gettysburg. An iconic fit, I think. We'll be back in a moment with the PA Books podcast. Enjoying this podcast? Please support PCN with a donation at PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. Now, an another thing that starts to happen in the 1930s is a growing automobile ownership, and that would, uh, especially after World War II, would, would have a big impact on parks uh, throughout the country. Uh, how do park superintendents start thinking differently once people are out in automobiles traveling around? Yeah, well, the automobile transforms how you see the battlefield, uh, to be sure. Visitors part of the automobile, of course, are traveling on horse and buggy, and often roads or avenues are laid out in that direction. Monuments face a particular way so you could see it from your buggy. You wouldn't have to get off and traipse out into a field to see it. But now, with the automobile, and really after World War II, when more Americans own automobiles than ever before, Gettysburg becomes a, a destination, a vacation site. And now you have to think about things like speed limits. Um, I read an interesting collection of speeding tickets in the park archives where people with these newfangled machines are coming onto the battlefield to kind of let loose their new automobile and test this new car and technology. And the park management is upset because they're going 12 miles an hour on the battlefield road. So that's interesting because you have people using the battlefield as recreation, right? You have battlefield uh, tourists to say these long open roads where I can sort of test my automobile, but it changes how you see the battlefield. Um, the tour routes are gonna come in place. There's gonna be tweaking and adjustments to them over time, how you see the battlefield from your car what that means for the town and the community with the uh, proliferation of hotels now and gas stations and restaurants and souvenir shops, Steinware Avenue, Baltimore Pike. All this is a reaction to Americans coming to Gettysburg now in the automobile. So as more and more people are, are coming out, uh, there creates a, a bit of a conflict or uh, some type of uh, challenge posed when you're trying to preserve something as a memorial site at the same time as well as an educational site. How did the people who were managing the park at that time balance those things? There's always a tension, and Gettysburg has this tension in different ways between like a utilitarian use and a preservation use. And the War Department is an example of this. The War Department, in balancing tensions, saw the Gettysburg battlefield as Yes, this is a memorial for the men who fought and died here, but it also is, has a utilitarian value. So during World War I, for instance, the War Department will allow a tank training camp on the battlefield, uh, specifically on the fields of Pickett's Charge. So Camp Colt, where young Dwight David Eisenhower is at during World War I, had tanks roaming through the battlefields of Pickett's Charge. Now, that makes preservationists cringe today, but the War Department's philosophy is very much rooted in utilitarianism. So those tensions are always evident at Gettysburg. And when you have 
particularly after World War II, the American economy is booming. You have disposable income. You have family vacations. You have a more standardized 40-hour work week for this, like, growing middle class. You're going to have hotels spring up on the battlefield. The Lee Mead Inn, you have the Peace Light Inn, the collection of cabins that were out on the first day's site out near the Peace Light, the gas stations coming in off of Route 30. Um, it's a growing tourist economy. And what that balance looks like, it depends who you're asking, right? That's one of the great questions, the, the ownership and all the competing interests at Gettysburg. Now, one of the characteristics of tourism in the period after World War II is uh, what some would call heritage tourism, where it, it becomes an act of American citizenship to visit some of these sites. Uh, can you talk about the, the significance of Gettysburg during that period for, the, for that type of tourism? Yeah, so that's a phrase that I borrow from a historian named Michael Kamen, who writes a book called Mystic, uh, Mystic Chords and Memory, the line from Lincoln's second inaugural. And it's this, as you describe it, this civic duty. And it really manifests itself after the Second World War, where the United States, with its allies, of course, has just vanquished totalitarianism and uh, Nazism, fascism around the globe. So we feel hyper aware of the virtue and value of democracy. And we also feel hyper aware of the cost of war and sacrifice. So Americans are interested in reconnecting with their history. And as we talked about with the automobile, you have these opportunities now to travel to places like Gettysburg. And you can visit this landscape where thousands of Americans fought, sacrificed their lives for democracy, for a new birth of freedom, as Lincoln says. So in the post World War II era, that really resonates. And heritage tourism is a concept of visiting these sites or independence, also here in Pennsylvania, where you can reconnect with what it means to be an American. A concept in the Cold War, mind you, that is still really relevant, how we privilege democracy. And here at Gettysburg, you can learn about the cost and the sacrifice that Union soldiers made for preserving that democracy. So as Gettysburg emerges as a, as a symbol of American ideals, uh, how are other battlefields treated? Antietam's not that far away in, in Maryland. Uh, Vicksburg, of course, is a big Union victory as well. Uh, are those battlefields seen the same way that Gettysburg is? So the short answer to that is no. I, I certainly think that Gettysburg is exceptional. And I, th I think about this a lot, like what makes Gettysburg different? What makes it exceptional? Is it the 51,000 casualties that makes Gettysburg different? I certainly think a component of it is. I think a component of it is Abraham Lincoln. Um, Lincoln's visit to Gettysburg to deliver the Gettysburg Address, the dedication of the Soldiers National Cemetery, in November, uh, November 19th, 1863, is unique. Lincoln rarely left Washington during the American Civil War. Rarely would he leave D.C. So when he comes to Gettysburg, that prescribes a certain import to that battlefield and to that Union victory. And I think Lincoln's presence at Gettysburg helps separate Gettysburg from the other Civil War battlefields. Now, sometimes there are 
comparisons um, are overlapping, but Gettysburg, in terms of tourism, gets far more visitors than the other Civil War battlefields do. There's definitely something that's different and unique about this landscape compared to the others. Now, in, from the mid-50s on towards the 1960s, uh, there were preparations for the Civil War centennial emerging during that time period. It, how, how did the, the way people were thinking and promoting the centennial shape the interpretation of that battle? That's a good question. And when I think about the Civil War centennial or, or talk about it, I always encourage people to remember that the Civil War centennial parallels the civil rights movement. So at the same time that Americans are thinking about commemorating or celebrating the American Civil War, in our country, we were going through a period of great social unrest. The civil rights movement, this divide between um, black and white Americans, all this upheaval in the American South and other places is going on at the same time. Gettysburg really holds a prominent place during the Civil War centennial. There is no other place, no other battlefield that will have as events as grandiose as Gettysburg. It's some two weeks of parades and monument dedications and rededications and speeches and pageantry. Uh, Dwight David Eisenhower will be here um, giving, delivering an address. And it's an opportunity to think about the Civil War a hundred years later, to think about the new birth of freedom. Uh, reenactment will be on the battlefield. By and large, though, the Civil War centennial, the interpretive trajectory doesn't change after the Civil War centennial. It's still very much focused on that high watermark thesis that we talked about, still very much focused on heroism of Union and Confederate soldiers, um, equally brave, equally true, fighting here at Gettysburg. So uh, as we move into the 1970s, uh, uh, we have perhaps a renewed interest around the bicentennial, uh, and is, does the, the nature of tourism change? Does the nature of the way the visitors using the park change over time? Um, I think there are periods where Gettysburg's going to be a little more of a recreational kind of park. Um, you could find examples in the local newspapers of people sled riding um, down East Cemetery Hill, for instance. So it has certainly always had a, a recreational element to it. Um, but the Civil War centennial and then beyond, I think really until the 1990s, is a period of, I would say, it's kind of intellectual stagnation or preservation sort of stagnation. Um, there will be a little bit of excitement at Gettysburg about the bicentennial, as you mentioned, but by and large, there's not a big shift in the interpretive trajectory or um, philosophy at Gettysburg really until the 1990s. Now, we talked a little bit earlier about the, the first superintendent and his background, and that's one of the themes in your book as well, which is looking at uh, how the backgrounds of superintendents and their personal visions would shape uh, various interpretations of the battlefield itself. Uh, was there a, a shift at some point between, say, people with the landscape architecture background to more people with the historical background? Not, not deliberately. Um, of all the superintendents that have been at Gettysburg, and there have been 13 National Park Service superintendents, um, two of them have strong backgrounds in history. Um, I mentioned John Latcher earlier. 
John has a PhD in history, and uh, J. Walter Coleman, who becomes the superintendent after James McConaughey uh, leaves, he's the second park superintendent. He also has a PhD in history. So he's there through the Second World War period. Um, those two men specifically have academic professional training in history, and I think that is important. And I certainly think for uh, John Latcher's tenure with the landscape rehabilitation, the creation of the new museum that opened in 2008, that training rooted in history, academic history, certainly allowed him to have the necessary tools and mindset and intellect to push those agendas forward that transformed the park. But otherwise, um, backgrounds for park service managers are incredibly eclectic. You don't have to have a degree in history to be the superintendent at Gettysburg. Now, another feature of the battlefield that people will see if they go there are licensed battlefield guides. And uh, can you talk about the, their origin in, at Gettysburg and, and the, the significance that they have played? The licensed battlefield guides are over 100 years old. And they are definitely one of the most unique, exceptional features on the Gettysburg battlefield. Um, basically, the, the roots to that is the federal government's effort trying to regulate who were doing tours. Um, prior to the guide system, anyone could do a tour of the battlefield, claim to be an expert, and make money on it. So this is an opportunity to provide some barriers to who can do the tours and who is licensed. So they have been around for over 100 years. They are licensed and tested by the National Park Service. And they have been a prominent feature in interpreting the battle um, for the past century. So visitors coming to Gettysburg could go out with a park ranger. You could do a tour with a park ranger. You can buy a CD, put that in your car, drive around the battlefield. Or you can go out on a two-hour tour with a battlefield guide and get an overview of the battle. or dive into something specifically that you want to know about. Uh, what have been the, uh, the licensed battlefield guide's relationship with the National Park Service? So that's evolved a little bit over time. There's a period early on after the National Park Service takes over, I think this is in Superintendent Coleman's administration, where they want to make the guide civil servants. Um, and the guide force will push back on that. They didn't want to be brought in into the civil servant. They liked their autonomy. And that proposal was abandoned. Um, sometimes the relationship with the guides in the National Park Service is about um, power, about control. There have been periods in the history of the park where the Park Service wants to put in a self-guided auto tour route or put in more interpretive signage, for instance, to allow visitors to come and tour the battlefield and understand the battlefield more on their own. And at various times, the guides, as, a, as an entity, have pushed back a little bit against that because they felt like it maybe took away from their um, business if visitors had more tools in their toolkit to tour the battlefield on their own. But by and large, I mean, the licensed battlefield guide force at Gettysburg is exceptional, and it truly sets apart how you can tour the battlefield here compared to any other Civil War battlefield. Now, you talked before about uh, the growing, uh, uh, growing use of automobiles and how that led to hotels and restaurants and gas stations and uh, other commercialization in the area. There, 
there was, uh, you write about, uh, there was an amusement park called Fantasyland yeah. at one point. Yeah. Uh, how were how they uh, balancing this idea of being a memorial site while at the same time it is a community where people live and there are businesses and if people are there, people are going to uh, start to set up businesses to cater to them. Yeah, it's tricky. Um, Fantasyland, and maybe some of your listeners will remember that, used to sit where the new the visitor center is today. That is an area that Fantasyland was designed um, specific, specifically for children, and it had all the different, like, Mother Goose kind of fairy tale sorts of characters, and that was prominent. I think its heyday was in the 1970s. Um, we were chatting earlier about the helicopter tours. You used to be able to take a helicopter and sort of see the southern end of the battlefield. So there's miniature golf, that miniature golf course, it's off of the Baltimore Pike, um, going down towards um, Culp's Hill, was just bought up by the Preservation Trust. So it's this constant tension between preservation and then the reality. Um, Gettysburg, today gets somewhere near a million visitors, I think I mentioned. You have to give them places to stay, places to eat, things to do. Uh, many people come to Gettysburg with their families, of course, so the kids might enjoy a little bit of time out on the battlefield, but then they want some other kind of entertainment or recreation endeavor to do, and you can see that that reflects in the town. It's a tourist industry, so that's both I guess a blessing and a curse for the hardcore preservationists to manage that, to balance that. Now you mentioned the helicopter flights and one of the stories you tell in, in, in the book is you say that when pilots approach Little Round Top, they drop their altitude to 100 feet, which forced visitors to scurry when they saw them approaching so low. Why did they think that that was a good idea? Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't say specifically for that. I can only imagine that was part of the part of the thrill. But can you imagine standing on Little Round Top and have this helicopter buzzing from you? I think the the helicopter pad used to be out um, kind of across from uh, Meade's headquarters on um, uh, the Leicester House on the Tawnytown Road, right? I don't know that there was a purpose for, for the buzzing other than probably the joys of the pilot, I have to suspect. But that was quickly um, eradicated, right? That wasn't a long-standing and thriving business. Now, one of the, the features of Gettysburg that many people will be familiar with is the influence of popular culture, movies like Glory and Gettysburg, uh, which was based on the book Killer Angels. Uh, how did that change the way people thought about it, or did, how did it impact the popularity of the battlefield? Dramatically. Dramatically. Um, the Killer Angels book, Michael Shara's book, but then specifically when that was made into the movie Gettysburg, dramatically changed how people thought about the battle, um, their interest in Gettysburg, period. Um, at the same time, Ken Burns is coming out with the miniseries on the Civil War on PBS. So there's this kind of surge, you mentioned Glory also, the surge in the Civil War in the 1990s. And people like Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain then becomes more of a household name, perhaps, than ever before. Visitation to Gettysburg will increase 14 percent the year following the release of Gettysburg, 14 percent following the release of the movie. And Little Round Top gets an abundance of love after that, because people want to go up there and stand where Jeff Daniels and Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain and the 20th Maine made their heroic stand. Um, there's one 
there's one marker sign that tells us visitors where a specific regimental marker is, and that's on Little Round Top to the 20th Main. Everyone wants to flood up and see the 20th Main. But this is great, right? This surge in popular culture from the movie Killer Angels, the Gettysburg, the book in the movie, Glory. It gets people interested in the Civil War, and it gets them coming to this landscape and learning a little bit more about Gettysburg and the American Civil War. Now, you, you were a ranger there for, for many years, and uh, how, what was the role of the ranger over time? Uh, early on, you talk about how they often had present campfires and presentations, but they were talking about other parks. Um, and then later, as time moved on, they started doing more interpretation. Uh, can you talk about the change in that role? So the National Park Service Ranger at Gettysburg, the interpretive ranger, does a tremendous amount of work. Um, the interpretation there is truly first class. When I worked there, um, specifically during the summer, because of course that's when the most visit visitors will come to Gettysburg, um, we would do over two dozen different kinds of programs a day. So visitors want to come to Gettysburg and get an hour program on the first day's fighting, you can go on that. You can do an hour program on Devil's Den. PCN, um, you all started covering the Gettysburg Battle Walks in 1996, I believe. So you would go out on tours with the park rangers during the anniversary and cover those three-hour-long battlefield walks. Um, there's nothing like that in terms of interpretation in any other Civil War battlefield. And also the kind of programs that Gettysburg offers is exceptional. You have, I mentioned Devil's Den or a program on Culp's Hill or Pickett's Charge. So you can please the people who want to know more about the soldiers and the tactics and the fighting. But Gettysburg also, the park rangers will do programs on the life of a Civil War soldier or Civil War medicine. They have a program for kids called Join the Army. So kids can learn what it's like to be a soldier in the Civil War Army. Um, we have programs on the aftermath of the battle, what happened to this town and community after July of 1863. So there's something for everybody. Um, social, political, cultural, economic battlefields. And I don't think, of course I'm biased, but I don't think any other Civil War battlefield does the depth and breadth of interpretive programming that the Park Service has done at Gettysburg. Now, one of the features uh, that was at the battlefield for a while was the National Tower. And it was very controversial, and eventually it would be demolished. But uh, what was the history of that? Why, why was it put up, and what, what was so controversial about it? So a, a good takeaway about the Gettysburg battlefield is that there's always something that's controversial. And that, that is certainly an example. It was controversial when it went up in the 1970s, and it was controversial when it went down. Um, Bruce Catton had a great editorial on it when it went up, and he called it an outrage. Um, it was so prominent. It was far larger than any of the—we call them the War Department towers out on the battlefield, like Culp's Hill or the Longstreet Tower. It surpa surpassed that in height. And you could see it from everywhere on the battlefield. I mean, it truly was an intrusion. And people grumbled about it when it went up. And then it was taken down in July of 2000. People grumbled about it going down, um, whether because they liked the bird's eye view or they remember going up in it, or they were locals who thought that the economic revenue was worthwhile and taking the property off the tax rolls was a detriment. I and mean, this is the thing about Gettysburg. It's, it's, it's a question of 
like who owns this battlefield and people are going to um, compete and argue about different things from different points of view and something like the tower shows that that consistency of contentiousness but what a victory for historic preservation in my opinion when that goes down now another topic of controversy were visitor centers and as they would be built and then demolished and rebuilt uh, well why, why were those so contentious so the Park Service Visitor Center we have today opens in 2008, but I suspect some of your listeners would remember the old Visitor Center, which was across the gate from, across from the Soldiers National Cemetery, and then the old Cyclorama Center. Um, I'll, I'll talk first about the Cyclorama Center for a minute. That was a Mission 66 project that in the 1950s, the federal government was going to pump an an extraordinary amount of money into improving infrastructure on national park sites. And for Gettysburg, that meant a new visitor center. So the Cyclorama was opened in March of 1962, right before the centennial celebrations. And the philosophy at the time was to put the visitor center on a prominent piece of ground. So in that instance, the Cyclorama is going to be built on Cemetery Ridge in the heart of Ziegler's Grove, in the heart of the Union Army's battle line. So visitors can go through the exhibits, they can see Paul Filibato's cyclorama, and then they can walk out the back door and you're right in the vista of Pickett's Charge. You're right in the center, so it's immersive. So, so that, was, that was the philosophy at the time, but then moving forward, having visitor centers in the heart of historic grounds becomes controversial, it becomes less desirable. So the site selection for the new visitor center that opened in 2008 was to try to build that in a place that it would do minimal intrusion to the historic landscape. So there's, it's not in the middle of the Union Army's battle line any longer where that new visitor center is constructed. And then the cyclorama is demolished and that ground is restored or rehabilitated to what it would have looked like at the time of the battle. The, um, the visitor center also that I mentioned across from the, the um, Soldiers National Cemetery was the old Rosensteel Museum. So the Park Service acquired that sometime in the 1970s. And with that acquisition of the building, they also got all the, all the objects that were in the Rosensteel display. And that building was also destroyed when the new visitor center opened in 2008. So I want to go back in time a little bit. Uh, at one point, there was a railroad on, on the battlefield. Was that for tourists? Was that? So um, there's, a there's a trolley line that would run crisscross throughout the battlefield that certainly was for tourists. And um, ironically, some of the early popular places on the battlefield were um, Culp's Hill <clears throat> and Cemetery Hill because they were closest to town where visitors coming into Gettysburg would hop off the rail line and they would just then go a short distance to Culp's Hill or a short distance and look at the fighting on East Cemetery Hill. Both of those places, by and large, are not the most popular places on the battlefield today, but they were with some of the early visitation trends because of proximity to the rail line. But there were other rail lines that cut through the battlefield and trolley lines that cut through the battlefield. And over time, the Park Service tore out the lines and start to um, remedy or repair that landscape. 
You can see some of the tracings of the rail lines, or the trolley lines, rather, in different parts of the battlefield today. So what do you want people to take away from your book? I would like people to take away from my book that the Gettysburg battlefield is always evolving. It was never static. And when you visit it today or you visit it in the future or think about times that you were there in the past, um, think about this as a landscape that has changed over time. The Battle of Gettysburg is 160 years ago, and that landscape has seen a tremendous amount of intrusions, a tremendous amount of history in its own right, a tremendous amount of um, reunions and camps and tourist attractions, visitations. Um, all sorts of people have come there from, from different places for different things. So I hope the big takeaway is the, the evolutionary nature of the battlefield. It's never been one thing. It's always static. It's always changing. And I suspect it always will be. Jennifer Murray is the author of On a Great Battlefield, The Making, Management, and Memory of Gettysburg National Military Park. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Listeners like you make PCN programming possible. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN Select app. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support.